0: A lot of these technologies can be applied in interesting ways. I think the big problem is not the technology itself in many cases, it's it's when the narrative around the technology is wrong or overstated, or you're trying to put the wrong type of energy source in the wrong area for the wrong reasons. I think that's where you get problems.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So I know you've talked about your background a little bit before. I know you were originally an engineer, but I'm curious to know about more about the first time you heard about Bitcoin. Like what were your original thoughts and like do you remember that moment or period of time?
0: I mean, so it's a little fuzzy because it was a long time ago. But essentially, uh, you know, I, I had a friend that was mining it on her computer. This was like 2010 or so, back when you could just do that with a graphics card. Um, and from the first time I heard about it, I thought it was really cool. Um, I was like, you know, I kind of, I got the basics of it. And I was like, okay, this is like self-contained system. And, you know, you basically, you, know, you can create new coins and get fees by mining it. And so I was like, this is a pretty cool system and you know i was really busy at the time and so it's kind of like uh, i thought it was neat but didn't really do anything about it and i always thought like you know maybe i should do some mining and then i just kind of didn't get around to it um and of course like you know the coins back then were like insane like they basically had no price they were like you know it, it, it's like um the biggest ever opportunity cost of being lazy there but anyway um and then like i would forget about it and i would see like uh you know hit hit the media or something like that like when it say hit a dollar um you know media covered it and you know my, my biggest concern at the time was that someone could just copy it and i was like okay so bitcoin scares but why why can't you just clone it like 20 different times and then you know dilute the whole market share and in some ways that's kind of what happened but um you know i it, it took me a while to really understand the implications of it i had to kind of e- encounter it a number of times and I was never one of those people that like didn't like it or uh, said it wouldn't work. I was just kind of like, yeah, we'll see. It's it's cool. Um, and I think on the second or third time I, I came into contact, I was like, maybe I should just buy like a thousand dollars worth or something. And you know, back then it was still super cheap. And I would yeah, looked at like the it's just kind of like it was like friction uh, in terms of like uh, the way that the exchange looked back then, and there was it was kind of known as like a sketchy industry. And i was like you know am i gonna get scammed or i was like i'll, I'll figure this out like next week and then again i just kind of like don't do it and it was for me what what made it interesting was you know I, I first wrote about it publicly in 2017 um and that was near the peak um and i i you know gave the whole case of why it's interesting but again was concerned about coin dilution and I also was at that point concerned about the sheer amount of like excess and exuberance in the space. So I, I was basically I'm gonna I'm gonna pass, uh, you know, um, and that ended up being a good decision. The whole space, is, including Bitcoin, underperformed for the next couple of years. But during that bear market, I kept watching. And when I saw the resolution of the block size war in particular, it was a really strong test for Bitcoin's immutability. And I also saw that Bitcoin's network effect at this point really matters. Basically, you know, anyone can copy Bitcoin or, or make their own crypto, but you can't replicate the node network. You can't replicate the hash rate. Uh, you can't replicate the development that happens on top of it, the surrounding ecosystem. And so I, the combination of seeing that test of its immutability and in my view, hitting a certain network effect and scale uh, really kind of push it over the line and, and, in my view, made it so that, you know, whatever the right position to have in it, I, I think the answer is not zero.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think many intelligent people, when they first find Bitcoin, they need a few touches and need a few narratives or or, you know, different research to really understand it and figure out why it's important. And I think, you know, even back then when you originally learned about it the first time, um, there just wasn't much good research or good you know, narratives around what Bitcoin even is. It's hard to find. Um, but I think that was you know, great background story. Um, we are filming this on uh, 2 p.m. on Wednesday, and we'll release it on Friday. But I'd, I did see the Fed just uh, announced a 75 bips hike. Do you have any you know, a re- uh, quick comment on, on that? Well, that was in line with expectation
0: um and so obviously we're doing this now so i'm not paying attention to the news headlines but yes 75 is in line with expectations i think what will be interesting is what um powell says in the in the press um because people are wondering the you know the bigger question the more uncertain question is are they going to talk about tapering the rate of hiking right they're still going to hike but are they going to you know maybe start doing 50 basis point hikes going forward or are they going to stick with very very hawkish language you know it's, it's kind of the sad day of our times where the whole world stops and here's what like you know one guy says that like him and his council of like elders are going to do with the price of money uh and it has global implications not just us implications uh but that's that's the state of where we kind of find ourselves in this like very analog manual uh monetary world so it's actually kind of a funny contrast uh to like the the automated global open network of bitcoin but yeah so you know so far no surprises
1: yeah, 100%. Um, I do want to talk more about macro. But before we get into that, uh, you recently published a, a piece on basically energy problems in the US. And, and one thing that I heard and globally, actually, um, one thing that I thought was very interesting in that piece was you talked about how there's actually negative energy prices in some locations and times in the US and potentially all throughout the world. Um, how does that happen? That happens when there's too
0: much uh, supply relative to demand, uh, but usually not for good reasons. It's kind of the similar reason why oil the futures contracts went negative in April 2020 because you suddenly had a big shutdown of demand of lockdowns, and you know that oil still take is still flowing, and so you kind of run out of space to put it, um, and you know we kind of can see that in, in some markets like this. And so basically, what's happening there is as you add more variable power sources to the grid, because, you know, you know, we have solar, we have wind, we have things like that, uh, but we don't have great storage. You know, batteries have, have been around since the 1800s, and the progress on them is is pretty slow. It's, it's very hard to make a cost-effective, energy-dense, affordable battery, especially at a utility scale. Um, you know, you can use batteries for, like, You know, shutting power down and very briefly and then going on to a different power source, they're good for like that brief bridging. But it's it's hard to like store energy at utility scale for like days and then deploy it when you need it. Uh, And so as you add more variable power sources, you have this thing where, you know, during the middle of a a day, for example, all the solar panels are giving tons of power. And whereas the, the peak demand is often like, you know, late afternoon. Uh, like kind of evening uh, when people are, you know are, are coming home and stuff, and so you often have a mismatch between supply and demand, and so the problem there is you have stranded energy that just gets wasted. I mean, you're you're just you're generating power kind of involuntarily at the wrong time, and so it just gets dissipated. Um, and obviously, Bitcoin miners have made use of this, right? Bitcoin miners are kind of specialists at going around and finding stranded energy, right? So it's good synergy there. Uh, but outside of really really flexible loads like that it's really hard to use that energy and it's also part of the kind of the narrative out there of, of you know what is the actual cost of of solar and wind you know they often say that you know solar is like the cheapest energy source it's like well sure it's the cheapest energy source at midday you know but it's it's what the question is how do you get that power into the grid on an on a ongoing basis because it's often cheap exactly when you don't want it and then it's not available when you want it uh, and so, negative energy pricing is actually kind of a problem that comes up. And and the better way to look at it is, what is the average cost of power on that grid, and what is the uptime of that grid?
1: Yeah, I, I think those are some great points. So basically, it sounds like we have this, you know, extreme mis- mismatch of supply and demand for energy, and we basically have a lack of base load energy, whether that's something that's stored in a battery or just energy that can be produced you know 24 7 365 under any conditions what's it going to take to basically like eliminate this issue issue, and maybe like why has this you know occurred more you know now than it has in the past
0: so i think there's a mismatch between perceptions and reality about where some of the technology is in terms of of different energy sources right so you know, something, you know, like three quarters of, of global energy comes from hydrocarbons. Uh and then the rest, you know, uh hydro and nuclear are big chunks and only something like five percent is wind and solar. Uh but as wind and solar have, have kind of been pushed uh to be, be larger and larger parts of the grid and there are there are certainly applications where they're useful. There's very there's very hot and dry regions of the world. Uh you know, rooftop solar can, can give you kind of more autonomy from the local grid. If you have say rooftop solar and a battery backup, for example, so, but as they've kind of um, put policies ahead of technology, uh, and you kind of like, you know, obfuscate the costs, overstate the strengths and and, and get that into the grid, it, it it's, you know, kind of caused some issues. There's also a challenge where, you know, there's not a lot of investment in the grid itself, right? So for example, California keeps having their electrical grid, you know, parts electrical grid face rolling brownouts uh, and, and you can imagine if, if you were to say 10 X, the number of electrical vehicles that are drawing power from that grid, instead of through the gasoline distribution system we have, right? That's all now, if that starts going over the grid, that's more stress on the grid. You need more copper, you need more redundancy, you need more cables, bringing that around. Uh, and so I think the short term way out of this is frankly, just, there needs to be more supply of hydrocarbons, natural gas, uh, uh oil and coal. Because that's that's what the world's currently short of, uh, especially in certain locations. Longer term, you know, I'd like to see a nuclear renaissance. uh, You know, combination of smaller reactors and a a better regulatory environment could really make nuclear come back. I mean, decades ago, it was actually pretty cheap and quick to build a nuclear plant. um, As as there've been a handful of accidents, um, which you know, there's actually even if you add up all those accidents, the number of Even if you take the worst case scenario of not just immediate deaths, which was very, very few, but if you kind of take the high end estimates for environmental damage and and what that could have caused, uh, you know, kind of in the region, you know, it's it's like it killed fewer people than coal kills like, you know, every year, for example, uh, through particulates in the air. But nuclear got that kind of um, increasing regulatory burden. And that now makes it almost impossible in many places of the world to build a new nuclear facility. Um, and of course you want like safe operations. So for example, part of why Chernobyl was so bad is they didn't even have like the, the shield uh, that now is standard practice among the nuclear facilities. And, and so there are obviously there's really bad ways to build a nuclear facility, but you know the modern ways and, and, and back then even the, the responsible ways can build safe nuclear. Uh, and so I'd like to see that combination of, of you know, they, they've developed small modular reactors. Uh, that's That's been a big, like a push lately. And if there were kind of easing regulatory environment, I think that nuclear can, can at least solve a lot of the baseload grid power. And then longer term you know there's there's interesting things like you know ocean thermal energy uh that i think is underexplored you know there there are other ways to get baseload power but the the general thing you need is that you need to have nature do as much of the storage and concentration as possible because the more that you have to replicate with machines you know the less efficient and energy dense that's going to be and so i think that's the big theme that a lot of people are, are missing in the energy space
1: yeah, I, I definitely agree that, you know, embracing nuclear energy is probably like the best thing that society could do. I think it, it would do a lot of great things. And I, I agree that in order for that to happen, regulations kind of need to change or they need to maybe, you know, decrease the amount of regulations around building nuclear power plants. And I agree that like, that would be great if that happens. But like, do you think that that will actually happen? I mean, I don't know, like in Europe, they're having major energy problems. Are they like, part is most of Europe embracing nuclear power at this point? Or are they still like holding back and like, what's going to be the turning point if, you know, obviously, I don't think they're fully embracing it completely. And neither is the US is does it have to get worse before it gets better? I, th- I think
0: so, unfortunately. Um, there's been some flip-flopping in Europe. So
1: first, they did not embrace it. Then
0: they said, maybe we shouldn't close down these, these power plants. And, and you see a little bit different response in each country. Uh, and also, nuclear is not perfect. I mean, even in France, where they have a ton of nuclear energy, you know, they had an issue where because of a drought, you know, nuclear needs a lot of water uh, to, for cooling. And so their rivers were, were quite low. And so a lot of their nuclear facilities ran into cooling issues. Um, and so it's not even necessarily a silver bullet, but it is something that I think most countries should have as a larger part of their grid. And I think it's it's going to take time and pain uh, both for that and for, you know, another round of hydrocarbon exploration and production, which, which, you know, I think makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but, you know, there are just people in the world that are relying on it uh, for, for their, you know, their, their life. Um, and so, you know, I think it's going to take time. I think it's, Narratives change. So for example, inflation hit, the, the idea was transitory. And then when it stuck around, the narrative changed to it's greedy corporations, it's, it's Putin, it's you know, XYZ. I think you're going to see a similar thing in energy where you know it's like it, it hits uh, you know, problems in Europe, especially, but elsewhere. And some of the politicians will, will say things like, this is why we need more wind and solar. And it's like, well, okay, give it a couple more years then um and then as this keeps grinding on i think more and more people get dissatisfied with the current situation they they do some of their own research and they say wait a minute you know this is not working uh and so over time you can you can change but i think it you know it's got to go through pain and also regions that don't embrace it regions that are slow to figure out their energy situation are going to become less economically and politically relevant uh in this kind of game of thrones of geopolitics um and so it, it's somewhat self-correcting. You know, if, if, if one country, you know, wants to decommission its nuclear and another one wants to build a bunch of it, um, you know, that's that's probably going to affect their future economic, you know, prowess. Uh, and so I, I think it takes time. I think it takes learning. And again, I mean, you know, a lot of these technologies can be applied in interesting ways. I, I think the big problem is not... The technology itself in many cases it's, it's when the narrative around the technology is wrong or overstated or you're trying to put a the wrong type of energy source in the wrong area for the wrong reasons i think that's where you get problems
1: yeah that's you know a bunch of very interesting points i know um in 2021 you you basically went back or you published this idea of of why you were so bullish on the energy sector broadly i'm assuming that's probably still the case um and if so how do you suggest you know your investors or your readers get exposure to energy like what you know assets like energy etfs or how do you like to get exposure so that depends on
0: what the investor prefers uh what you know the areas that they know i've been using a mix i I generally invest in the equity market so a lot of producers and transporters of oil gas uh, coal uh, and and also i'm directly investing in uranium itself Um, now you can also do long dated futures of say oil brent for example brent crude um, I think there are multiple ways to play it. One thing you have to be careful of is jurisdictional risk. And so one of the things that could actually kind of contribute to a bull market is there are a lot of politicians that want to do things like windfall taxes on oil and gas companies and kind of use them as scapegoats for inflation. Now the problem of course is if you, if you look at equity returns over the past 15 years, energy companies have been terrible. Uh, you know, there's a lot of bankruptcies when oil crashed in 2015, 2016, then There were more bankruptcies in 2020. That was a very tough environment. You know, no one thought to do reverse windfall taxes, bail out the oil and gas companies. Um, But now that they're actually in a period of profitability, you know, um, politicians are kind of floating ideas like nationalization or windfall taxes. And the issue there is that if you're, I mean, that's like, it seems like low hanging fruit. It's like, okay, take take from the people that are experiencing abundance and then help out you know, I, I see why politicians reach for that. But the problem is if you're an oil and gas executive and you're determining where you want to invest, whether or not you want to pr- bring new supply to market, you know, now now your, your decision making is, well, so my upside is potentially capped. But I still have all the downside risk if, if you know, oil is bearish or something. So I got to be very careful about investing now. And also, I mean, there's all these like initiatives to, you know, avoid oil and gas equities and their bonds and focus on kind of ESG approved things. So you basically increase the cost of capital for the oil and gas company. That increases the hurdle rate of a project that they'll be willing to invest in. They're more cautious and they're more self-contained, you know, using the, using portions of their profits to invest and not issuing a ton of debt or equity uh, like they did in the prior uh, decade. And so, but the good news is that higher cost of capital means potentially higher returns for investors that are willing to go in that space. Um, and so I think it's, I think there are a lot of opportunities this decade, um, and it'll be volatile, but I think there'll be a lot of opportunities in oil, gas companies, transporters, uh, I'm a little bit more cost around uranium miners, uh, but there are vehicles out there that you can get exposure to physical uranium itself.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I have one last energy question, then we can, uh, move out of this, but, um, in your, in your uh, piece, you basically talked about this idea of EROI, energy return on investment. Can you explain that concept and why it's important? So it's a difficult to measure, but important variable, which is to look at an energy
0: source and determine how much energy you have to put in in order to get energy out, right? What is the multiple of that energy source? So as, a, as a, an easy to think of example, if you wanna uh, produce oil, you need to dig a well, you need to, uh, first you need to explore, they need to, then you need to dig a well, they need to pump it out, they need to transport it and refine it. And that takes energy. You're basically putting, you're using oil to get more oil. And the question is, what is the multiple? And that changes over time and it, and it varies depending on the type of, of energy source, like the type of oil deposit, for example. For example, there's a very high return on invest uh, on energy in say Saudi Arabia and a much lower return on investment in very difficult to reach uh, uh, types of, of oil. Um, another example would be if you wanna build solar panels, first you need to go up and you need to dig up a ton of polysilicon, which is a energy intensive. Then you need to manufacture the panels and then install the panels. So you, there's an energy input that you have to do. And then for the next, you know three decades or so those are producing energy and so you can do a, a, a calculation and say okay what is the you know going back as far as we can in the supply chain how much energy are we getting out compared to what we're putting in and generally what you see is that concentrated energy sources from nature so that's uranium geothermal hydro uh, and hydrocarbons of various types they generally have high energy return on investment uh, so you can, you can get 30 40 50 or more uh, uh, multiple of energy for every energy you put in Whereas generally these unconcentrated types where you're, you're capturing the flow of energy rather than like a concentrated form. So solar, wind, uh, biomass, those end up being much lower energy return on investment, which again, doesn't make them bad in all circumstances, but it means that they have pretty significant limitations on the percentage of, the, of, of energy they can be, uh, especially with currently, current technology, and then especially in, in countries that are trying to grow quickly. Right, so it's easier to incorporate them to various degrees if you are kind of a, in a more stagnant population scenario, a more stagnant kind of wealthy, uh, slow growth scenario. Uh, but they don't work very well when you're in a impoverished, fast growing scenario. Right, so for example, you know the United States can, for example, gradually phase out coal, add a little bit, of, add a little bit of uh, solar to its to its grid. Um, certain there's certain regions where wind can make sense, and especially if you use like say. Bitcoin miners and some and some batteries to kind of soothe out the variability, you can make that work. Whereas if it's in India, you know, where they're uh, much, much, much lower energy per capita and then much kind of more impoverished base and a much faster growth rate, you know, they're getting most of the new energy from coal and oil. So even though they are around the margins adding some solar panel, they're really kind of focused on what is the fastest possible payback for energy. And so it really kind of comes down to what it is you're optimizing for. But high, high uh, energy return on investment is a very important metric.
1: Right now, if you were a large, you know, oil and gas executive or, you know, at a large power producing company, would you be looking at, you know, acquiring Bitcoin, like public Bitcoin miners that are under extreme duress right now or at least scooping up maybe their mining rigs? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Probably as long as I had job security. So that's, that's the thing. So there's there's career risk where, you know, the downside of something um, can, can make someone not do it, whereas the upside makes them do it. So for example, why, why was MicroStrategy the one that, that kind of went all in on, on Bitcoin? And it's like, well, Saylor has, has, you know, a very large stake of the equity and the voting rights. And so he's able to operate that almost like a small business. Um, whereas if you have one of those big companies where, you know, the CEO owns like a quarter of 1% of the shares and, you know, he's, he's kind of optimizing for quarter by quarter results and something like that, it's hard to make, um, you know, decisions that are, that go against certain narratives or optics. Um, but I do think that, I do think that a shrewd energy company now should be looking into Bitcoin miners, especially in this area, this time of stress, because I I think the, the way this is going. is is we're going to see more and more integration between, you know, just energy producers and Bitcoin miners, right? Because, you know, the cheapest energy is energy that you produce yourself and then it's stranded or like surplus and you don't know what to do with it. Um, And so uh, you can just, you, you always have your own buyer, your own way to monetize stranded energy.
1: And so I think that it's smart to get ahead of that. Yeah, fully agree. I mean, I think it's, Like you said other than the idea of of career risk and kind of just playing it safe it seems pretty much like a no-brainer especially if you're you know generally a bitcoin bull i'm curious to know kind of how you broadly think about bitcoin adoption itself like bitcoin regularly experiences you know massive parabolic bull runs like 2013 2017 2021 and then it follows like the the dark bear markets um what do you think like the catalyst for those parabolic bull runs are? Like some people argue like, okay, havings are somewhat of a catalyst. Some people argue money printing, some people argue like m2 money supply growth. It's highly correlated with you know all three of those bull runs. Do you think it's you know one of those more than the others? or do you think it's a combination of them? How do you think about those bull runs? So I think the having matters over time, obviously, but I, I don't think the timing is super useful.
0: Um, for for the specific kind of um you know bottoms and tops of, of those big markets i think uh, i think liquidity is a uh, much closer variable i've done a lot of analysis on this so if you look at pmi cycles so purchasing managers index is kind of a, a measure you know if i look at one macro chart for a country i want to look at its pmi which is you know purchasing managers index if, if it's if it's rising it means the economic growth rate is accelerating and if it's falling it means it's decelerating and if it goes below 50, it means it's, it's, it's probably outright contracting. Uh, and, and so economies go through these ebbs and flows. And generally, Bitcoin does very good in rising PMI environments. And most, most risk-on, quote-unquote, risk-on type of assets do well or better in the rising PMI environments. Whereas Bitcoin generally does historically pretty poorly in falling PMI environments. Um, and, and generally, the types of investments that do well there are defensive types of equities that are less uh, economically exposed. But then when you dig in deeper, uh, you find that liquidity uh, corresponds heavily to PMI. And Bitcoin is even more closely associated with liquidity. And a, one one simple way to measure that is to look at global M2, or let's say M2 of the top five countries, for example. You know, kind of pick pick your sample, but basically a, a large section of global M2, which is broad money supply and then you denominate that in dollars. Um, And if you chart that rate of change terms, like year-over-year percent change, and you run that next to Bitcoin, uh, especially in year-over-year percent of change terms, you'll see pretty strong correlation. So basically Bitcoin has not been acting as a hedge against quote-unquote inflation like CPI, uh, but it actually is a very, very strong hedge uh, against global growth of broad money supply in dollar terms, and then it does poorly when that when that is decelerating, or especially when it's negative uh, year over year, and that makes sense because that that's kind of a liquidity driver for everything. And what determines that? There's two main variables to determine that. One is how much money printing is happening among the major powers, and then also how strong is the dollar relative to other currencies. Because when you denominate all of that in dollars, uh, you know if the dollar is stronger, you know you can get flat M2 even if most m2s are still kind of going up but if if you put it in dollars and the dollar like went up like say 10 15% that year you could get a flat figure and that's generally a bearish environment for bitcoin um, and so I, I i generally find that to be the strongest correlation that when money supply is growing when well, liquidity is abundant generally bitcoin does well a uh, pretty strong correlation and then when that's all tightening and pulling back that's when that's when bitcoin tends to struggle
1: yeah i mean it makes a lot of sense that it's Bitcoin is highly correlated to M two growth rather than you know CPI inflation itself, and it's interesting because I don't remember ever seeing like an M two uh, growth percentage chart uh, compared to the price of Bitcoin until maybe this year, and and now that I've seen it, I'm like okay, like this makes you know a lot more sense. You know, havings I think are like bullish catalysts, but you know the M two growth makes you know a ton of sense in my opinion. Um, I guess just moving forward, kind of given this uncertain macro environment that we're in, what are the chances that we see like another Great Recession-like scenario, maybe where like US equities end up, you know, over 50% off their all-time highs? Do you think that's a high probability at this point or or a low probability? It's not my base case, but it's a reasonable probability. Um, But I I think it'll be different than
0: Great Recession, right? So I think this is more similar to the 1970s or 1940s or even the 2000s after the dot-com bubble. Um, and it's very different, in my view, than 2008 or say 1929. So what 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 2008, what the Great Recession and the Great Depression had in common is that the implosion was mainly in private leverage and and especially in banks, right? So both of those had just epic banking crashes. They were undercapitalized. They had they had uh, a lot of loans relative to the monetary base, um, and so that was like a private sector implosion uh, of debt. Um, so what we're seeing now is quite the opposite, which is that banks uh, have a very high allocation to safer assets. Obviously, it depends on the bank. You know, there's there's some trouble spots in Europe, for example. But talking about say North American banks, they're much they're much more um, capitalized and uh, much more allocated as a percentage of their total assets to things like cash and treasuries compared to riskier loans or securities that can that can you know have a higher chance of defaulting nominally. And so, I think that looking at 2008 is like fighting the last battle and that there's there's problems now in some ways there's bigger problems but they're different problems so i think the problem now is more at the sovereign level at the currency level right so japan has too much debt italy has too much debt um the united states has too much debt uk has too much debt uh multiple countries in the world have too much debt and so they are in a situation where you know they have trouble raising rates to to suppress inflation um uh sufficiently and so I think I think that a lot of the pain is going to be in bond and and currency markets. We've already seen that, that that's already what made this different. And that's not a great environment for like unprofitable growth stocks. Right. So if you look at at you know, when you when you entered the 2000s decade, uh, after you got out that bubble, you had a more inflationary commodity driven environment. And if you looked at, you know, the S&P 500 did terrible, uh, but it was driven by the Nasdaq type of stocks that were crashing. Whereas if you looked at REITs, if you looked at energy companies, if you looked at, you know, kind of more value type of stocks, let's say healthcare, um, they generally didn't go through the same type of chaos that the technology sector did. Um, and I, I think we're kind of in a similar environment where because it's more inflationary uh, and because the challenges are more on commodities and interest rates and sovereign bonds, It's just a very different environment. It's a a more stagflationary type of environment rather than like a deflationary environment. And so I I think there are better analogs than the 2008 um, crisis.
1: Yeah, I I think that's, you know, very reasonable. There's kind of this sentiment now among, I think you've mentioned this before and other macro analysts, how the Fed's basically going to, you know, keep hiking until inflation cools down or something in the treasury market breaks. How close are we are to either of those? And like, you know, which one do you think is gonna happen first? And, you know, if something in the treasury market breaks, what do you mean by that? Like what exactly would break? Well, so back in
0: say March 2020, the treasury market broke. So, so you know, the global economy shut down, the dollar spiked because everybody still had dollar debts, but their dollar cash flow suddenly dried up. And so that was a problem because all that debt represents demand for dollars. And so the Fed had to come out. And so one, one way they, that they handle that, if you're a country that has a lot of dollar diamond debt and you're, say, like your banks are about to crash, they need the dollars, you can sell some of your treasuries uh, and then use those dollar proceeds to kind of, um, you know, help your economy get out of that mess. Uh, and so what happened was dollars spiked and then there's huge forward selling pressure of treasuries and it basically broke the treasury market. It just kind of went no bid at certain parts, uh, especially off the run securities. Um, and the, it's not because people looked at the price and said that's not the right price. It's a, it's a mechanical issue of we have treasuries for this reason. This reason happened, so now I, now we I have to sell treasuries, and we're seeing kind of a slower moving version happen now, which is that as as the Fed is more hawkish than most other developed countries, as the dollar strengthens, uh, that's you know generally you're seeing a strong inverse inverse correlation, where now other countries have to trim their treasury exposure. Uh, to supply themselves with dollars, um, and so they're basically calling in their dollar claims, um, and so the you know the Fed selling treasuries, the foreign sector selling treasuries, uh, U.S. commercial banks, due to regulations, are kind of stuffed already. They can't really buy more treasuries unless they adjust certain leverage ratios, uh, and so the biggest balance sheets aren't buying, and then the question is, can these smaller balance sheets absorb it at these higher prices? Uh, like, a, can can that can these higher yields entice? more of those demand to come in. And so we're seeing unusually high volatility and unusually bad liquidity in the treasury market. And it hasn't outright broken yet, uh, but it's very strained. On the other hand, I I think we are seeing some disinflationary pressures. Um, If you look at a lot of, um, you know, if you look at shipping rates, if you look at semiconductors, if you look at, um, you know, there's a lot of bottlenecks that have been somewhat resolved. um, And we're seeing disinflation around the margins. Now the pro- the question I think is how sustainable that is, right? So that's with the US strategic petroleum reserve rapidly drawing down. Uh that's with, you know, diesel near near record low storage levels. Uh that's with China still doing lockdowns and therefore suppressing its hydrocarbon usage, especially for things like jet flights and and you know, various fuels. Um and I think that I think that the inflation we're likely to see going forward is more energy driven. Uh, and so I think that temp- temporarily they can get a lid on it. They've already kind of um, slowed it down significantly. Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be more of a recurring issue. So I think that they, they can let their foot off the brake for periods of time, but then inflation is ready to come right back. Uh, and so I, I think you have to watch both the treasury market and the energy market
1: uh, if you want to have signs of inflation. I think this is going to be a pretty, pretty
0: turbulent period.
1: If the Fed uh, does end up pivoting because something in the treasury market breaks, but they pivot before inflation, you know, drops back down to 2%. How do you think like that will be justified, you know, more from like a political perspective? Will there be like more fiscal stimulus that are like inflation handouts, like inflation based UBI that are kind of ironic, but will, will will more programs like that come about to help the populace while the Fed, you know, continues pumping liquidity into the system? I think it could be a, it's definitely going to be a challenge, especially
0: because after the midterms, most polls and betting markets suggest that the government will be more split, uh, which makes passing those types of measures more challenging, at least for the next two years. Uh, so we'll see what happens on that front. Um, but I, I think that the way the Fed would justify it is by calling it a technical issue. Um, and so, for example, in 2019, the Fed was reducing its balance sheet. They were doing quantitative tightening. And then out of nowhere, the repo rate broke. Um, so the overnight kind of this, this this interbank lending rate, it's supposed to be super low and boring. It just spiked up to like 7% overnight. It was like, and it, it's basically like a, a, a core plumbing issue, uh, just sprung a leak. And the Fed jumped in within 24 hours to start providing repo liquidity and a lot of people were confused at the time but there were some analysts covering it and kind of predicting something like this i think uh luke groman called it very well ahead of time and because i was also doing my my own research when it happened um i kind of knew what the what the issue was and essentially there was like this t-bill oversupply problem so this, you kind of had a a broken t-bill market in a way but because repo funding was used to buy treasuries it showed up in the repo market and So my view was that the Fed was gonna probably have to start buying T-bills. And then weeks later that they did, right? So I'm on the record saying that they're gonna have to buy T-bills, I think. They ended up like weeks later announcing they're gonna buy T-bills. And then the joke became, you know, Powell was saying, this is not QE. Um, And it's like, well, what is it then? You're buying T-bills. Uh, you were reducing your balance sheet. Now you're increasing your balance sheet. And that was before recession. That was before COVID. That was like late 2019. Um, and so the joke was among macro investors, they would call it not QE. They're like, yeah, the Fed is doing not QE. Um, and there's all these kind of debates at the time. It's like, oh, it's a it's a complex technical plumbing issue. It's, you know, X, Y, Z. And it's like, no, no, really kind of what you're doing is you're monetizing T-bill uh, issuance due to oversupply. Um, and so I think it'd probably be a similar thing where, you know, instead of just saying, hey, we're going to pivot and buy as many you know, treasuries as we want, I think it could look more like the UK situation where you say, hey, we need to do temporary intervention, um, or you get a situation where they adjust the SLR rules for banks to let banks buy more treasuries, um, or they do a program like repo programs and things like that to absorb it. You um, you can, you know, th- There's various levers they can pull. And right now, the issue is more the longer end of the curve. Right now, there's actually in some ways there's T-bill undersupply. Uh, so T-bills are not the issue this time around, it, it's the longer part of the curve. Um, but I, I think it's something you have to watch over time. I think they'll be more careful with how they call it optically and it'll be kind of marketed as like a technical issue.
1: If they do go about doing that and putting like this band aid or duct tape on this technical issue, I mean, back in 2019, obviously going into 2020, it got a lot worse for both You know, US equities and Bitcoin do you expect the same like if if the treasury market breaks and they do this not QE is it still likely that we'll have to go lower for for, for things like Bitcoin and US equities so I so
0: when that happened last time it was bullish um, generally it's it, it you'd probably expect it to be all this equal dollar bearish and and kind of risk asset bullish um, if that were to happen um, and it, you know it depends on how you know, I think the magnitude makes a big difference, right? If they have to do small interventions, that's less meaningful than they if they have to do big interventions. Um, you know, one way they could potentially stave that off is if they kind of slow the pace of rate hikes, uh, the dollar index stops like screaming higher, you could get some more foreign demand for treasuries. And then the fact that they're yielding like 4%, can bring in some retail investors and some some asset managers and things like that. So I, th- I think they can still kind of push this problem down the road uh, for a period of time. But I think that in one of a few ways, either the rate of change of the Fed's uh, you know, hawkish differential compared to the rest of the world, if that starts leveling out, that should be you know, somewhat toppy for the dollar, at least in terms of the speed with which it goes up, which should be somewhat constructive for risk assets and or if they have to intervene with liquidity measures. Um, but I still think at the current time, you know, I, I think... You know, I think there's there's certainly value out there, but I think it's, especially in terms of investors that, that use leverage or that are concerned about volatility, I think you have to be, still be prepared for the next six months or so of volatility because they're still doing QT, they're still hiking rates, uh, and we still have a declining PMI, uh, we still have a strong dollar. And so I, I think an, until we get more evidence that things are changing, things are still kind of defensive looking. Uh, but, you know, Bitcoin specifically, I think is it's already capitulated uh, pretty brutally. Uh, that doesn't mean it can't go lower, but I do think it's in a value zone down here. Uh, you know, you have like market price below realized price. You have miners capitulating. Um, I, I think this is an interesting long-term uh, entry zone. Uh, I just think you have to be careful about expectations in the next six months. And, you know, my base case is is, is sideways to up, um, but, but you can certainly have you know, policy errors or, or kind of disinflationary shocks that, you know, give you another like lower.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely generally agree with, with that sentiment that, you know, it's definitely a value zone for Bitcoin and, and probably like US equities as well, but there could be more volatility on the way, who knows. Um, you retweeted this very interesting graphic on Twitter, uh, basically about how two centuries ago, Ninety-six percent of the world population lived on less than five dollars a day, and that was adjusted for inflation. So it, it kind of visualized like how much wealthier the wor- world has gotten, you know, over the last two hundred years, which is pretty incredible. And a kind of a controversial question here, but do you think fiat money is is possibly of what contributed to this rapid advancement, rapid you know growth of the world, or do you think it's mainly just technology reaching a tipping point and and Freeing up time for other humans to, you know, build other technologies, and it was just kind of a compounding process. I think it's hydrocarbons. So going back to the prior discussion on energy
0: uh, return on investment, you know, if you if you map human population, um, you know, that reduction in poverty and hydrocarbon use, it's essentially the same chart, right? So we started discovering, you know, first was coal, and then you know, especially with with the with oil. Um, you started to see this massive increase in wealth. And that's because, you know, instead of having most of the population have to like farm to feed themselves and and the others, you know, one farmer with a tractor can do the work of of 20 people, for example. Uh, And so essentially there's like a crazy number, like every barrel of oil is like 20,000 plus man hours of like like caloric use. Right. So just, just imagine like, and that's like, you know, right now, that's what, like $90? I don't have the price in front of me, but you can get, get 20,000, you know, man hours of labor, essentially, with, with you know, $90. Um, and that was, that's like it tremendously uh, beneficial for productivity. And then when you combine that with, you know, the discovery and application of electricity, uh, using all that energy to, to pump water um so you you basically people now have clean water they you you get rid of wastewater you bring in clean water um you know uh and it's some some basic medical discoveries about you know how germs work and how to do you know surgery with anesthesia and things like that a handful of technologies can just dramatically change people's lives uh and so that started happening Uh, before fiat currencies. That was happening through the 1800s, for example, uh, and it continued through the fiat currency era. Uh, But I I think a lot of that was, you know, hydrocarbon usage specifically, and and just in general, the the application of of high energy return on investment sources.
1: Yeah. and, And in some ways that kind of comes back to Bitcoin, since Bitcoin is basically this technology on trying to incentivize more energy production and more efficient energy production and i think you know hopefully you know in the next 20 years or so we'll have another hydrocarbon like advancement in energy production that maybe you know frees you know not 200x uh, or 20,000 hours but maybe 200,000 hours uh for per barrel of oil or per uranium uh, sample out of the ground. Yeah, uranium is one of the densest of all. I mean, one little pellet,
0: you know, can can uh, I don't know the numbers in front of me, but it's it's tremendously energy dense. And there, you know, I think like, you know, there are people looking at the fact that we don't tap into most of our oceans energy, for example. You know, I I think there are kind of areas of exploration. There's you know, there's people looking into uh, ways to get um, geothermal energy to to more people that, you know, they can go deeper and, and see if they can make that economical. We'll find out. You know, I think that there are on the horizon you know interesting energy sources and i just think it, it it takes a willingness to use them and it takes you know one of the benefits of bitcoin is that you know it, there's always like a, a kind of a guaranteed buyer um and that allows you to bootstrap energy sources that might otherwise you know be more challenging and so i'm, I'm pretty optimistic long term even though you know energy energy scarcity is one of the the scariest things that a, a civilization can go through um and you know, for for emerging for developing countries, the biggest thing is like food scarcity, followed by energy scarcity. Whereas for developed countries, generally, food's not a problem, And so energy is the biggest thing. That if you mess that up, that is that is a severe problem. And I, I think that this is going to be a challenging decade for energy. Uh, but I do think that
1: it is solvable. Yeah, I guess it's safe to say that the short term, you know, doesn't look too great, but the long term is certainly. Very positive, hopefully, <laughs> um yeah. one last question and then and then we can go ahead and wrap it up. How do you envision the world looks in maybe twenty to fifty years specifically around bitcoin? Do you think of bitcoin always being maybe like this treasury reserve asset that's only used for savings technology, or do you think it's possible that bitcoin becomes like the go to transactional currency between you know individuals and merchants or or do you always see like maybe like you got money like dollars or or treasuries existing. So predicting exponential things is always challenging. Um,
0: And so I I think you have to hit milestones before you then make more ambitious assumptions. Right. So, you know, it's kind of like wake me up when Bitcoin's 10 trillion and then we'll start talking about the next step. Right. So uh, I think you have to I think you have to kind of take things step by step. But I think that what makes Bitcoin interesting is it mixes that savings technology with that censorship you know, resistance, uh, you know, global settlement network, um, with things like lightning and fediments and, you know, all these different types of scaling and speed and privacy, uh, improvements on Bitcoin. Um, I don't see a reason why it can't be used, uh, for more and more payments over time. I I think there will always be some degree of custodial overlays, um, on that for, for people that want that. And you can even have a country, for example, that backs its currency, by it and, you know, uh, it gets integrated into payment systems i think it'll i think a lot a lot of people will be using bitcoin and i necessarily know you know the ways that they're they're interacting with that full stack um but i think that you know at the very least um you know unless something disrupts it i think it's 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 going to keep growing over the long term as as something that more and more people want to have some of and then as a reserve asset and then you know over a long arc of time the way I would phrase it is, you know, there's there's almost 200 countries and almost 200 currencies. And that's, that's, that's kind of like barter, right? I mean, that's, you know, and I, I think that there doesn't need to be that many currencies and, and that, you know, over time it becomes increasingly untenable to have a lot of those currencies in a world where Bitcoin exists and is let's say $10 trillion market cap and is more stable, more widely held. Um, I, I think that a lot of people would opt into using Bitcoin, that would kind of crowd out, uh, you know, starting from the periphery and moving inward, a lot of those types of currencies. Um, And so we'll see what happens with some of the core developed currencies. Um, I think they're going to go through a currency devaluation and a debt crisis uh, in the next 10, 20 years. Uh, But I think as you look out really far, I think, you know, Bitcoin is the money
1: that a lot of people are going to want to hold and then ideally to use. Awesome. Well, I think this is a great spot to go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. I think the audience will love this. Um, is there anywhere you want the audience to go after this? I know you have a Twitter. Anything else? Uh, they can check out lindalden.com and they can also check out my Twitter uh, at Lynn
0: Alden contact. And thanks for having me.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Len.